It's Midday Magazine for July 20th. Happy Thursday. Alaska state troopers say evidence shows that a Juno man missing since last week drowned in Mendenhall Lake. According to a release yesterday, video evidence confirms that Paul Jose Rodriguez Jr. drowned while kayaking last Tuesday. Rodriguez was not reported missing until Sunday night even though his kayak had been found floating on the lake last Tuesday. During the search for him, an unnamed person turned over a helmet and a GoPro that was confirmed to belong to Rodriguez. Troopers say the GoPro footage confirms that Rodriguez overturned in his kayak and drowned. Search teams will continue looking for his remains. The number of volunteer firefighters in Alaska has nearly halved since 2014, according to state fire marshal data, and it could be putting communities at risk. KFSK's Thomas Copeland has the story. You can find the Petersburg Volunteer Fire Department about a mile out of town. Aaron Hankins is the director of fire, EMS and search and rescue. He is just one of three employees here. The rest, all volunteers. Right now, Hankins is doing a routine vehicle inspection after a fire which engulfed Petersburg's Catholic Church earlier this month. This is engine six, and if you want to take a look on the inside, we'll go ahead and get in. All right, and we get. Okay. How many people can fit in this engine? Engineer, officer, fireman, fireman, fireman. Five seats. Five seats. When this engine left to go to the church fire, how many people were in here? This engine rolled by itself. So one person, just the driver? Just the driver. And why was that? At the time, uh, we needed more equipment on scene and uh, not enough volunteers at hand. And when there aren't enough volunteers available, that can hold back the rest from doing their jobs. We shift from an offensive, go in, fight the fire where it's at, to a more defensive posture, we call it surround and drown, and are trying to fight the fire that may be burning inside from the outside of the building. Is that a less effective strategy? Yes. This situation will sound very familiar to Alaska fire chiefs. The number of volunteer firefighters across the state has plummeted by 45% since 2014. That's more than double the decline seen nationwide. Justin Boddy is the president of the Alaska State Firefighters Association. He says the huge drop in volunteers is particularly stark when he thinks back to volunteer training sessions a decade ago. You would have a packed house, you would have every vehicle, every apparatus in the fleet staffed for that night, and now you are lucky if you can staff one or two vehicles. And while volunteers are clearing out, the phone lines are getting busier. Calls to U.S. fire departments have more than tripled since the 80s. Everybody calls 911 now if they have a problem. So now we're not just going to medical emergencies and vehicles or structures on fires. We now go to all rescue scenarios, hazardous materials, service calls, down power line, utility calls, uh, and much, much more. Plus, Alaska faces another pretty unique problem. Among first responders, there's this thing called mutual aid. Basically, if there's a big fire in a town, engines from the next town over can race down the road to help out. But Alaska has a lot of hard-to-reach communities, like Petersburg on an island or Nome off the highway system. Lower 48 can keep requesting resources from miles and miles and miles away where we do not have that luxury here in Alaska. All of this isn't just a problem for fire departments. Volunteering in general has declined in America over the last 15 years. So says Dr. Nathan Dietz, research director of the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland. He says the pandemic made everything worse. 
Data from AmeriCorps shows that volunteering in this country has fallen by 7% since 2019. That drop even took Dietz by surprise. That's four or five percentage points more than any, any drop that I've ever seen in the past. He says the pandemic impacted volunteering in two ways. First, it broke our habits. People were first unable to do what they always had done. And when they were able to do it, then they kind of did a a top to bottom rethink of all the things that they had been committed to doing. And second, people got used to being online. Now that they can go back to the organization, uh, I would think many probably haven't. But you can't battle a burning building in front of your laptop. So back at the Petersburg Fire Department, Aaron Hankin says he needs to find new ways of attracting volunteers. There is at least one thing that seems to work, seeing firefighters in action. Since the fire last week, we've had about five people sign up. And why do you think they've signed up? When we do have those instances of major fire and the town realizes that, oh, there's only a couple guys walking outside. But if Alaska fire departments want to keep functioning, they'll need a more sustainable recruitment strategy than simply waiting for the next big blaze. And from the cab of Petersburg Volunteer Fire Department, Engine 6, I'm Thomas Copeland. The last two years have been big for Kodiak Tanner crab fishermen. Processors offered record prices back in 2022, and this year's harvest levels were the highest they've been in nearly 40 years, making it the largest crab fishery in the state. But as Kirsten Dobrith reports, all that attention has also renewed discussions about how to best manage and protect the fishery going forward. Back in January, boats sat on anchor waiting to offload their huge crab harvests at Kodiak processors, sometimes for a week or more. There was just a lot of crab out there. Teresa Peterson is the fisheries policy director for the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. Her family has been fishing commercially in and around Kodiak for decades, including for Tanner. Kodiak's Tanner crab population tends to fluctuate, but when numbers are good, the season opens in mid-January. More than 130 vessels participated in this year's fishery. Peterson says it's welcome work for skippers and crew. The Tanner crab fishery provides a really important source of revenue for small boat fishermen in, in the dead of winter when there's really little to no other Um, fishing income opportunities. That revenue was worth nearly $20 million to the local fleet this year. The available harvest was 5.8 million pounds. Biologists say the quota was likely the peak of a large crab cohort that was first observed back in 2018. The next few years will likely be good too. Peterson says the fleet is already banking on it, particularly as catch limits and prices have been cut in other areas. With the price of salmon that we're looking at right now, the bright spot in our future is that crab fishery. I think it's going to be really critical in these next few years. The bulk of Kodiak's tanner crab is found on the east side of the island, and an area known locally as the Sandbox is a tanner hotspot. It also overlaps with a federal groundfish fishery. And that's where things get complicated. Conversations about conservation in the sandbox have been going on for a while. I've been trying to get tanner crab protections for 19 years. Alexis Kwachka is the skipper of the fishing vessel No Point. He's also a member of the Kodiak Crab Alliance Cooperative, which represents tanner permit holders. He says bycatch is a main concern. As tanner crab fishermen, we're bearing all the burden of conservation. So we just, we want accountability on on the interaction uh, with other gear groups. 
Kodiak-based bottom trawlers have fished for flatfish like rock sole and arrowtooth flounder in years past in and around the sandbox. The trawl fishery didn't open the last two years, but this spring they ran just over a dozen trips to test the market. That's also when biologists say crabs are in their vulnerable molt stage, and crabbers want more monitoring to make sure tanner crabs aren't scooped up as bycatch. Right now, trawlers and fixed-gear vessels in the water off Kodiak are monitored for bycatch either by observers on board or electronically with cameras, which are on just a fraction of the time. Julie Bonney is the executive director of the Alaska Groundfish Data Bank, which represents Kodiak-based trawlers. She says it's costly and takes time to implement monitoring programs, and right now there's not enough data to expand monitoring across the fleet. Let's bring the information back decide whether we have a problem and if we do, how we're going to fix it. Quachka and a group of other fishermen asked the North Pacific Fishery Management Council to make changes. At the council's meeting in June, they proposed a cameras-on-all-the-time policy known as 100% electronic monitoring for all vessels in the hotspot area. With electronic monitoring, it kind of takes all that guesswork out of it. If the cameras are on all the time, whether you're a trawler or a longliner or a pot fisherman, um, it makes it so we can just do a better job. It's a familiar ask. More than a decade ago, the council considered expanding monitoring at the sandbox, but it ultimately didn't go anywhere. This time around, the council didn't approve more observers or monitoring either, but they did vote to gather and compare data from all gear groups in the sandbox. Bonnie, with the trawlers, says it's a good starting point to balance everyone's interests. It's a big deal to have all fisheries be successful. And so from a small boat perspective, the tanner crab fishery was really significant for those guys this year. And thankful for that. But also as a trawl um, person, we want to have healthy flatfish fisheries and bottom fishing around the island as well. Quachka says he and other crabbers were frustrated that the council didn't go further. But he's cautiously optimistic that the door is open to possible future action. Peterson, with the Alaska Marine Conservation Council, says the council process is slow by design. And she's also encouraged by the June meeting. She says the fact that so many gear groups fish out of Kodiak should be a strength for future management, not a weakness. Kodiak's a fishery-dependent community um, reliant on all kinds of species, you know, salmon, halibut, sablefish cod, herring, groundfish, crab, and that working together we can help to identify fishing patterns where you're able to prosecute your fisheries without impacting another fishery. The North Pacific Fishery Management Council is set to pick up the discussion at its December meeting, just about a month before Kodiak crabbers will set their gear for the next season. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. Southeast Alaska's regional commuter airline, Alaska Seaplanes, has recovered from the COVID recession and is expanding its routes through cooperation with Ketchikan-based Island Air. Alaska Seaplanes President Ken Crayford spoke to the Sitka Chamber of Commerce yesterday and described how the company rode out the pandemic and emerged in a better position to serve the region. Crayford didn't shy away from what he said was the most common feedback he'd been hearing lately, rising fares. In fact, in 2022, we had to push through uh, three different fare increases last year to keep up with our rising costs. Prior to that, at least in the in the 10 years uh, we had been running the business, we had only raised fares once in a year. Uh, so we've seen a real hockey stick effect recently 
in our cost drivers, um, you know, this mirrors the inflation that we're seeing in the broader economy. Uh, but it's particularly acute in the cost drivers for scheduled airlines. And that, those are, of course, fuel being a huge one, uh, insurance, but largest of all, uh, labor. Crayford said the company was deepening its relationship with the flight schools as baby boomer pilots retired, including supporting the aviation class at Mount Edgecombe High School. He said the national shortage in pilots and other aviation jobs would be a self-correcting problem. For any high school student in Southeast Alaska that is uh, considering a career in aviation, whether it's as a pilot or a mechanic, um, I can tell you the market is incredibly strong right now. You're pretty much uh, guaranteed a job after graduation. Crayford said the biggest development at the company was its partnership with Ketchikan-based Island Air, which operates the busiest route in southeast Alaska between Prince of Wales Island and Ketchikan. Crayford said the companies would remain independent, but have a shared route map and schedule in the future, which would allow passengers to go from Craig to Haines without flying over the top of the jets. This is a significant turn of events from just three years ago, when the pandemic threw aviation and everyone else, a serious curve. April 6th of 2020, I think that was our low point. We flew four people that day, something like that. Those four brave souls <laughs> uh, and a lot of toilet paper, um, you know, and other stuff on that airplane. What happened with COVID was we saw our freight business surge. Uh, we saw our passenger business drop off a cliff. And then like most airlines around the country, we saw passengers slowly come back a little more in 2021 and then a huge resurgence in 2022. Crayford said much of that rebound was due to tourism, but that seaplanes, routes, and schedules were still tailored primarily to local transportation, especially medical transportation. Two new pharmacy Related bills were signed into law by Governor Mike Dunleavy in Soldotna last week. Both bills were authored by first-time Soldotna Republican Representative Justin Ruffridge and passed during the first session of the legislature. The first bill exempts veterinarians from reporting to the state's prescription drug monitoring program. Vets have been required to report to that database since 2017, a response to rising over opioid overdoses in the state, but some say that's a logistical hassle because the program is designed for human patients. Because animals don't have unique identifiers, vets were required to check the prescription histories for pet owners, creating an ethical gray area and inconvenience. The bill had strong support from veterinarians and veterinary associations in the state and bipartisan sponsorship in both the State House and Senate. Dunleavy visited Twin Cities Veterinary Clin Clinic last week, owned by one of the bill's strong supporters, Jim Delker. The governor signed the veterinary bill and another piece of Ruffridge's legislation, which makes amendments to the definition of pharmacy in the state. In a press release, Ruffridge said that second bill had been a years-long effort to, quote, modernize pharmacy statutes in the state of Alaska. Ruffridge is the former president of the State Board of Pharmacy and owns three pharmacies in Alaska. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.